Welcome to Crash Chords Autographs. Today, Matt welcomes Katie Delaney and Robert James Prinebush. Both previous guests on the Crash Chords podcast, Katie Delaney is an animator and voiceover artist, while Robert is a music producer and musician who is a member of many different bands, including Rare Spirits, The Wasties, and The Rose West, just to name a few. Katie and Robert both hail from Philadelphia, where this interview was recorded on location in their studio. With Matt, Katie chats about her ever-expanding voiceover career, working with YouTube channels The Richest, The Trendy, and The Things. She has also now branched out into recording audiobooks. Robert talks about producing and recording the Rare Spirits three-song EP Dram, and also about his production style and what it's like to work with stubborn or difficult musicians. And so, from all things production to voiceover work to the mutual past shared between them and your host, here's presenting Matt Storm, Katie, and Robert. And welcome to Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, and my guests this week are Katie and Robert. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having us, Matt. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, thanks, <laughs> asshole. Um, uh, for those who listen to the flagship podcast, both Katie and Rob have been individual guests and brought, actually both consistently brought, not great albums, too. Yeah. Um, I would say that Rob's was way worse and almost painful, whereas yours was just kind of... Meh. Yeah. Yeah, I really should have listened to that album before I brought it. Actually, I think I think Steve is actually very much appreciative of the fact that you listened to it, knew it was terrible and still stuck with your pick. Oh, you got it. Cuz not a, a lot of our guests will bring, either bring stuff that's important to them or stuff that they like or just stuff that they hadn't known nothing about. The fact that it was an artist you were passionate about and that you still hated the album and you still brought it on was kind of great. Also, if you hear Matt meowing in the background, that's Pilot, their kitten. He is very upset that he has been shut out of the studio. He's not pumped that he was not invited to be on this podcast. No, yeah, not he, at all. He's got he's got abandonment issues, despite the fact that he has never been abandoned. Yes. Um, and so, but I wanted to have you guys on this show because you guys work on stuff, a ton of stuff that we've talked about in brief on the podcast that I thought we could talk about a little more in depth here and then get into like other stuff that we nerd out about all the time. I mean, I do like briefs, but I mean, boxer guy usually. The pun, you'd think the puns would stop, but they won't. Well, Steve will appreciate that this episode will probably be full of You puns. put a microphone in front of him, it's your own fault. That's fair. I, I thought it was like, autographs, an underwear podcast. Okay. <laughs> and anyway, um, so the first thing I wanted to bring up actually, Katie, is since the last time you were on the show, you started doing a lot more VO. Um, you were always doing VO and art, and uh, someday I'll have a new logo for this podcast made by her. Someday. Um, but you started doing audiobooks recently as I well. I did. I did start doing audiobooks. Um, I've done seven audiobooks through ACX, which is the uh, Audible Creative Exchange, where writers and publishers post completed novels and then put them out to audiobook producers who then create audiobooks. Um, I use Robert here as my in-house instrumenta- instrumentation. Instrumentationalist. <laughs> uh, so he usually will create a 10 to 15 second clip that mm-hmm. leads into the audiobook. And then I 
go at it. Uh, and then after you finish, I hum those melodies constantly. For weeks. <laughs> for weeks and weeks. I just, uh, I just finished recording Under a Mating Moon by Celia Breslin, which is a uh, werewolf erotic novel mm. that is four hours long about a... Uh, EDM DJ that goes by DJ Lone Wolf. He is an EDM werewolf DJ who uh, is a lone wolf. I gathered that. Yeah. Um, the book is actually delightfully sexy in parts. Yeah. Uh, it actually caught me off guard. Um, there's no sex until about two thirds of the way through the book, and then then it gets steamy real <laughs> fast. Um, but it was delightful. Celia is amazing. She um, invited me on to do her next couple of books as well. So I'm about to start start breaking ground on Jasmine Moon, which is the follow-up novel featuring the same family of characters as oh, cool. the last one. Um, and then I've done a couple of children's books on the opposite end of the spectrum. I narrated a six-hour-long ketogenic cookbook, which then violated Amazon's policies and was taken off of the audible market, and I was never paid for. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, reading recipes alone to yourself in a room for six hours is not fun. I imagine not. I'm also, I always, when you were recording that, number one, listening to you just in, in headphones, speaking a cookbook out loud is, <laughs> it's insanity fuel, which is wonderful. Uh, and then the other piece, I was just like trying to imagine how you would even use an audiobook cookbook. cookbook. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Like, yeah. like you'd have to pause it every three seconds to be like, now add spinach. Pause. All right, I added the spinach. Add half cup one onion. Wait, Pause. Wait. wait, how much spinach did I need? Rewind. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, like it's the worst possible format for it anything does seem, like that. Uh, yeah. It did see, seem a little silly. Although my favorite thing is when you linked your the new book oh, that no. you just done, and then I was able to, you know, in most websites, either written written articles or something like Audible, you can click on the artist or the or the Arthur to see all the stuff they've done. Well, I clicked on your name and then listed all the books you'd read. And one of them was a Donkey Don Kong joke books and memes, a collection of the greatest and funniest of Donkey Kong joke books and memes for all ages. Uh, that book does not contain a single joke in it. Yeah, it was, it was, I listened to the, the quick clip of it. I was like, this is internet gold. It's awful, but it's internet gold. It's the worst. It has officially one star, both for the audiobook. Um, and then the joke book itself, when I'm not reading it, has four stars. I don't understand. They just hate me. Um, but it was written, <laughs> I'm assuming, by a kid. Yeah. He's written five joke books, but they're not specifically joke books. They're meme books. Right. And memes aren't funny to read aloud. Yeah. And they're not funny without pictures, and none of his memes have pictures. Like, one of the jokes in it, um, spoiler alert, <laughs> is it's literally just um, Donkey Kong and Mario having a conversation, and it's Mario reminiscing, like, Donkey Kong, do you remember how we first met? And Donkey Kong's like, yeah, you hit me over the head with a wrench on a construction site. And Mario's like, no, I was saving a beautiful princess from your... You're a horrible captivity. And he's like, Mario, I've never kidnapped anyone ever. You really hurt me. I had to go to the hospital. And then Mario just pauses and it's like, I was doing a lot of drugs then. Like, that's the joke. And that's it. It's, it's unreadable. <laughs> um, and it makes no sense. But it was the first book I did for uh, the Audible Creative Exchange. And I just, 
I uh, submitted an audition for it because the audition text that they had was decent. Yeah. And then they sent me the script and I just went, this is unreadable. <laughs> but you better believe I'm going to do it. I have so far made $3 in sales off of uh, royalties for that project. Wow. All right. Impressive. Yeah. And then you've also been doing, so you, you work with a few different YouTube channels as well. I do. I am... Uh, the co-main voice for the richest, mm-hmm. um, which is a YouTube channel with over with almost eight million subscribers, which is nonsense. Um, and then the company that owns that channel also owns about fifteen, twelve other YouTube channels. Um, I work for two other ones there, which is also the Things and the Trendy, um, where I provide you with saccharine nonsense for your brain that. Uh, slowly ruins your ability to uh process complicated thought okay um that's wonderful but it's a lot of a lot of top 10 videos of top 10 things you don't know about and you definitely don't need to know about but strap in kitties because we're gonna spend the next 12 minutes giving you something that's absolute rubbish but maybe might help you win trivia someday in a bar Enjoy that $20. It it mostly helps Katie win trivia. I'm real good at trivia. I'm sure. Well, you (laughs) were good at trivia before. It's true. After working for this company for three years, though, the amount of useless knowledge that I have is... Especially after those 30 facts series. Oh, my God. Yeah, for a while we were doing... We had 58 of them, I think. They were 30 facts in 10 minutes. And it was just... Wow. Bang out facts. Um... Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> yep, there's a lot of that. All right. Well, yeah. it sounds like you're doing a lot more though, which is awesome. I am. I also just uh, just started, just got hired on to uh, help as a new voice for uh, LittleThings.com's YouTube mm-hmm. page as well. So um, I should have about thirty videos with them by the end of the month. Cool. Um, which is super neat. And then we're gonna see how that fit goes. And then from there, I'm working for a consulting. Um, YouTube consulting firm mm-hmm. and uh, potentially picking up a couple more YouTube channels from there afterwards, which is crazy. And then hopefully uh, in the near future, uh, Robert and I will be potentially working on a, a podcast of our own, which I will be doing voice work for that. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's like it's like you're a voice actor or something. Holy shit, you know. It's the only... You support yourself off of doing it for two years and then all of a sudden you're a real one. Yeah. That... that that's how that works it's amazing you just yeah keep faking it till you make, make it. it yeah it's... i've been faking it till i make it in podcasting and yep. djing for a long time hey look at you <laughs> yeah. djing weddings yeah well anyway <laughs> that's legit <laughs> um and then so robert obviously those who have listened to the show many times heard you when the wasties were on heard you when you were on and know that you were on the wasties you are in um the rose west you are in um um Rare spirits. Rare spirits. My, I had a brain fart. Rare spirits, which is pretty much the wasties without Sarah. The sound is different, but like the makeup is yeah, the same. Yeah, it's it's, exa- it's the same group of people. Yeah. Uh, but I play a hell of a lot more banjo. Yes. Um, and so um, I know you've been you're always constantly working on that stuff, but the the performing you've been doing the most has been with the rare spirits lately, correct? Yeah. And so, uh, for those who are not familiar with the rare spirits, I know you guys have some stuff online. Um, what kind of music is the rare spirits? So uh, the the band kind of started because our friend Noam, who's also been a guest of 
uh, not autographs. No, but regular Crash Course exactly. uh, as Painless Parker. As Painless Parker. Uh, he used to work for the Amer- uh, Museum of the American Gangster in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if any listeners out there have ever been to or have heard of this place, but essentially they they tell the story of who gangsters were, how they came about, and a lot of that is tied into the history of American Prohibition. Mm-hmm. So Noam, being like a sponge for random awesome esoteric information kind of became an expert on the history of prohibition and thought oh there's a boatload of music i mean like 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 uh novelty songs and topical songs and political Mm -hmm. songs and just people who were talking about how much this era had an impact on like the whole social fabric so kind of came to to us and said well do you guys want to maybe play a couple of these songs at the museum and then nothing came of that really for the most part uh until Finally, we were doing so. All all of us actually participate in a program um, called uh, Groove Mama or the Great Groove Band, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a group that teaches kids fundamental folk music skills at festivals like uh, the Old Songs Festival in Altamont, New York, which we just actually were at playing and teaching, and the Philadelphia Folks uh, Folk Fest, and a bunch of these different little or big um, festivals. And so since we were at the Old Songs Festival for the first time, it was all of us there, we thought, okay, maybe we can find a way to showcase some of our own stuff. And so we put together a whole set telling the history of Prohibition and performing all these different songs, and that kind of just created a new band. Mm-hmm. And from there, like, I, I love history, but I'm way more into the idea of playing creatively with soundscapes and uh, the catharsis of like making something with a group of people. And so it evolved from just a band that played these you know traditional prohibition era songs into writing original tunes at this point we did uh we had a short demo that we produced a couple of years ago that was sort of like a a mishmash of original material and traditional tunes um but we put out last november a short little three song ep Mm -hmm. that uh, focuses on the writing that each of the songwriters in the band do so there's a song written by myself a song written by Noam a song written by Molly uh, and you and can silence by Alex yes sil- well there there is in fact a, a, a whole 40 minutes of silence at the end of the disc it, it doesn't play you just have to sit there quietly uh, Math, that was that was created by Alex yes that Alex's, was that was uh, Alex's contribution creative contribution that's good um, a man that is the only member of the Wasties I have not had on this or the other podcast that I will eventually, even though he refuses. Yeah, well, when well, he comes, I, I mean, all you have to do is ju- just be aware that much like the end of Dram, yeah. uh, he will just be the blank spaces yeah. uh, in your podcast. Yeah, we could just record, say he was there, and people might believe it. You I could mean, just uh, bring a chair into a room yeah. and then set up the mic and then ask the chair some questions and yeah. you'll get... That'll be your interview with Alex Bell. Yeah, that's that, fair. That's, that's a pretty realistic uh, simulation. Uh, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> I think I remember one time um, we were working with uh, a band called Eli August and Ben Buildings for a while, mm-hmm. and there was a record for that band that I had produced mm-hmm. and was doing a big PR push, and among the things that we were asked to do was we created a mixtape mm-hmm. and at the time that band had like 16 people in it yeah and so the thing that we had to do was each person had to pick a song that they liked and then sort of describe why it was an influence on them or their you know relationship with that band and uh i literally got alex to name a song and then his response for why it was there was i like it i guess 
And that was what I submitted <laughs> to the actual article that got printed. It was bizarre. Yeah. And completely unrelated, um, as we're talking about the music that you're working on, and this has no relation to what you were just talking about, how do you deal with Because I know you do a lot of production as well when you deal with an artist who's kind of difficult to work with and eventually there's a separation and creative difference, which is completely unrelated to anything else we've talked about. Um, how do you get through that? Because I know you're a very creative person and you like working well with artists and a lot of... Um, the content you can create comes from camaraderie. So when you're faced with a difficult artist, how do you kind of work through that? Well, I mean, there there are a couple of ways to do it. I mean, th the first thing comes to mind if you're picking up a project, like you don't have a long-standing relationship with somebody, and you want to do some work with them. Uh, the the best thing you can do is have realistic expectations about sure. you know what what's the timeline going to look like. Let them know that timelines for recording often are sliding scales because right. you get part way through something and. It's not like you know an engineering project where you set all the things that you want to accomplish up front, and if you plan effectively enough, you might you know be right on the money for how long it's going to take and what it's going to cost. Right. You know, producing, doing a fully produced record in particular, um, is a lot about having a lot of ideas to to quote to quote the McElroys, throwing spaghetti against a wall and like seeing what sticks. Um, and that can be a kind of an expansive thing mm -hmm. that people who are not used to being in a production environment and working on records, they don't have exposure to that process. Right. And the thought is, well, you know, it's we're going to set up some microphones in a room and everybody's going to get around and we're going to sing and we're going to play and we're going to have a record that's perfectly, you know, production ready, prime time, we could put this on television. <laughs> and it's just, there are a lot of unrealistic expectations up front. Right. And when I find people who are difficult to work with, it's often because those expectations are mismatches from the reality of that. Right. But I think, in particular, the other piece is, if you have somebody that you've been working with for a long time, where you have an established rapport, I mean, relationships uh, change over time. And, sure. and band dynamics are, even even in bands where you're like, I don't really know these people, I just play with them. Uh, I was talking to Molly's mother recently, mm -hmm. uh, Donna Hebert, who is an... an Incredible, incredible fiddle player. And a future guest of this podcast once I get off my ass and actually make that happen. <laughs> uh, and she no was... to go to Western Mass. That's true. Well, she was talking about the fact that no matter what, uh, you have to you have to be intimate with people you play music with. Yeah. Even if they are people that you are not really intimately acquainted with, mm -hmm. just the process of performing is, is a, an intimate process. Right. So uh, over time, when you've worked with somebody for a long enough... Uh, period there is a bit of yourself that's creatively entangled with that person yeah but just because you've built this relationship and this entanglement doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of how you function fits well together right the same way that you like you don't get to pick your family once you start playing with somebody there's a part of that that becomes more like family than a friendship or a working relationship sure uh from a production standpoint um i think there's a there's a reason why a lot of bands don't self-produce things that they're releasing on a larger scale or more professionally. Right. And in part, it's because uh, it's hard to step back from work that you're that you're um, both uh, critically listening to, mm -hmm. um, trying to make production decisions about that can have impacts on people's feelings and opinions. Right. Um, and then the other piece of it is it's very hard to judge yourself in that context. Right, sure. Uh, so oftentimes you'll find... I remember I, I did a bunch of acapella albums when I was in college. They were the first uh, 
first recordings that I was ever a part of where we were producing and selling an album. Mm -hmm. And the engineer that I was working with that was engineering and producing those albums said, you know, what you often find is uh, bands will do one to three records with a given studio. And usually we'll hop to a different studio producer for, you know, one of the albums in that progression. And then what you'll find is that if you make enough records with people, eventually like, well, okay, that that didn't feel right, or something about about the relationship didn't work out as well. Right, and so you'll either find that you gravitate to and away from you know the same the same production context. Right, uh, or you know you just stop making records. <laughs> right. Well, you had produced Dram, I imagine, mm-hmm. and then didn't you also, if I recall correctly, I know you were on it, but you also produced Noah uh, Painless Parker's live album as well right yes. yeah and so like i remember listening to that the first time i heard it first of all i love painless parker's live stuff like he's great on his recorded stuff but his live stuff is where the energy is oh, but what's fascinating to me is. and what's fascinating to me about your production work on that is you know you can get a sense of the live experience from how well that uh, record was engineered and produced like it feels like you're in the room with the band which well, i think is really great and so actually so production choices I'm I'm a bit of a gearhead when it comes to recording. I mean, like we're sitting in front of <laughs> something. I don't know. Yeah, we're recording on location in Philadelphia because later today Woo-hoo. the three of us are going to see the Gorillas. Which, when John and Steve hear that, are going to be very jealous and upset. Heck yeah, you didn't tell them you you were seeing the Gorillas. I, I mentioned it a long time ago, but they probably have forgotten because Steve can't remember three days later what he said three days before. He's a sweet little goldfish. He That's is. It's true. <laughs> but um. But uh. But yeah. No. And, and so we, we've talked about that a lot, like how tech you get in the weeds with that kind of stuff yeah and what's what's funny is like I can I can talk for days about okay so like what is game staging and how yeah. does it work with the creative process and right uh, you know what what should a signal chain look like to get the best capture like my attitude with with a production a recording production yeah isn't necessarily you know I want to produce everything to sound the same like here's what a good record sounds like I, yeah. I don't think that's a universal I think that Particularly because when you capture a performance, there there are like three things that you're doing, right? You're putting putting a musical work down in a format that's physical and enduring. Right. Uh, you're capturing a performance of that work, and uh, finally, you're capturing a sense of a space. Right. Um, and the thing about like traditional multi-track recordings, in particular, is uh, oftentimes the goal is remove any sense of space. From, from that recording. Right. You know, you will have completely dead rooms where you yeah. get everything into multi-track. And part of the part of the logic behind that is that you're trying to add the sense of space in after you've captured the performances. Right. And, you know, if, if the thought is, you know, we know what sense of space we want to create and we have no way of capturing that sense of space with what we have, that's a great way to do it. Um to, to bring this back full circle to the Painless Parker live album. Yeah. It happens that I had a great tool in my, my tool bag mm-hmm. for capturing exactly that scenario, which is um, a, there, there are things called ribbon microphones, which are right. super neat because they have the ability to capture some very, uh, very fine detail. They're a little bit tricky because you have to push a lot of juice into them to get the kind of gain back that makes, you know, a listenable recording. Right. Um, the ribbon mic I happen to have with me for that recording is a stereo ribbon mic that does a figure eight capture. Mm-hmm. And basically what it means is that it creates a it creates a left-right image just from the capture of a single microphone. Mm-hmm. But it captures 
everything that is in front of the microphone in a big circle and everything that is behind the microphone in a big circle and it rejects all the audio to the left and to the right. Right. And the liveness of that recording came from the fact that the audience interaction mm -hmm. uh, was as present as the band, mm -hmm. for one, and for two, all of the reflections that, that hit the back of the room and came back like you would hear sitting in the audience, you got and pushed them down into this one stereo image. So uh, that was a one microphone recording done with a full live take with a little bit of post-production. Yeah. I had I'd compression and I'd do an EQ curve to master sure. and prep. But it's very minimal production and it had to do with knowing uh, what the space was, what it sounded like having the right tool to capture the space and the performance in the piece. Right. And then an audience that was willing to play. Well, I think also part of that is the fact that there's less production is still a production decision. Absolutely. So the fact that the fact that, you know, there's less actual production on it doesn't mean that it was any less produced. It's just you know where to and not dabble. Well, it's just, I had a I was having a conversation with a friend of mine just a couple of days ago, um, and he's in a group that's making a record uh that kind of went into the recording process thinking, okay, mm -hmm. we want to sound, we don't want to sound overproduced. We want it to sound natural and real. And, you know, they did this as a, as an engineer and a producer, you will often have people come into you and say, you know, this is my goal with right. creating a recording. And you've got two options talking about like difficult clients. You can take the time to try and say, okay, if you're new to this, let me explain what the situation is. And I don't want to make any presumptions about your experience level, but you know, and that's a difficult exchange. You right. Know? The easier thing to do is say, okay, we'll just put one mic in front of you and let it rip. Yeah. Um, and the reality is that if you want to create a really natural sounding produced recording, right. and where you're not necessarily aiming for just, I want to find a way to make production decisions and do a live space capture that works, like I did with the Pingless Parker record, mm -hmm. Um making an album that is produced and multi-tracked yeah. that sounds natural and not produced is way more of a production yeah. than, you know, even just going ahead with a classic, you know, like super dry multi-track kind of setting. Right. Because um, it's counterintuitive. Right. And if you're not used to the process, yeah. you just would never assume that was true. Sure. Well, it's kind of like walking up to even like a makeup artist and being like, well, trying to get a natural... A natural beauty makeup look yeah. requires as much makeup as like a full drag paint your face kind of a situation. Yeah. And it's much harder to do effectively and people just don't think about it where it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to stand in front of this one mic. I'm going to do one take and it's going to be done. And then you play it back for them and they're just like, this sounds like shit. And so well, this is what you wanted. Yeah. Like, oh God, do I sound like that? <laughs> like you're going to hit that kind of a situation of where people don't know what they're asking for and yeah, long the story between, short it's the difference between uh asking for something asking and what you ask someone, for yeah. and what you want yeah like they're not usually the same thing the, the long story short really is depending on any any line of production work whether it's voiceover work professionally or it's music recording is you have to be nice to your sound engineers do not <laughs> give them a hard time they know what they're doing yeah. Trust them. Don't ask, you know, your brother's best friend who's dabbling in music design. Don't ask him to be your sound designer. Sorry, brother's friend. Like, I just took your gigs away. But it's <laughs> hire professionals. Yeah. You will get professional work. Trust them. Take their direction. Do what they say. It's what they do. Mm -hmm. Like, when you walk into a studio, the best thing that you can know, and this is also for, like, 
if you're an aspiring musician or voiceover artist, honestly, the best thing you can do is at least basically make yourself comfortable with the gear that you're using on a regular mm-hmm. basis. If you're walking into a voiceover audition, talk to the sound person first. Yeah. They're going to be the person that lets you know, like, know what questions to ask, know what microphone you're recording on, know what kind of software you're recording into. If there are certain kind of mic presets or if there's a pop filter, like every little bit of what you are doing technically Mm -hmm. is great to know ahead of time, but never question them. Yeah. Never be like, oh, really? We're using this. I'm better at using. Don't do that. Don't be horrible. Trust your sound person. Trust your producers. Be a good person. I am. I'm the worst about that. I'm, yeah, and, well, it's because you're not, a sound engineer who well, also is talent. Well, there's also it's a bit. Oh God, never, never. <laughs> he also cannot produce himself, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, just oh, so yeah. everybody knows, J- to, he turns to, into a little wreck. To be clear, never, never be both an engineer and a performer. It's a terrible idea <laughs> uh, because then you just never trust anybody ever. It's bad. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm really bad because uh, I try to make sure that when I'm doing rehearsals and I'm arranging my practice space, uh, I try to hone. I like to hone the concept of a live performance if the performance is amplified right. in the same way that I would a recording. And oftentimes that comes down to things like, you know, mic choices and signal chain. And uh, for live performances, every venue is going to be different. Yeah. Um, and there, there are two scenarios that, that you usually encounter, which is one, the, the venue's uh, reproduction equipment is like ancillary mm-hmm. to what the venue is doing. Like they're really more of a bar, but they happen to have a sound system because they have live music. Right. In which case, you know, the people who are running it know what their equipment is. Yeah. But their goal isn't necessarily like, I'm going to have you make this wonderful sounding yeah. stage production. It's, I'm going to do the best that I can for you with what we've got and trust me to know what that is. Yeah. And the way that I come up like an asshole to try and fix that is like, oh, well, here, here are my mics. And here's my signal chain. Can I pop these into your board? And the way I try to, to rein that in yeah. a little bit is I try to give the venues options. Yeah. Like if I say, okay, I know that I've got, uh, you know, I've got my M80s, my Norman M80s, and I know that they work for these voices, but I also know that, you know, I don't know how much gain is going to be pushed out on a preamp channel. Right. I want to give them the chance to tell me no. Yeah. But if they say yes, <laughs> then... I go a little nuts. I'm sure. And then the band starts two hours late. Yeah, that's really happens. what bar sound people want oh, yeah, is to get the band should... going by nine fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the bar sound person wants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you're speaking from personal experience. What? Yeah, you know, the thing is, like, it's it's really hard too because as if you if you as a as a uh, musical group have done the work of trying to hone a sound for a live show, the tricky thing is that in the same way that like, you know, you don't want. You wouldn't necessarily want a recording that you've made to be, you know, put through the world's worst sound system. Right. And, you know, sound underwater and totally messed up. Right. Um, sometimes happens. you want your live shows, or at least the parts of your live shows that you've honed really well, like, you've, you've spent all this time practicing together and working on material. You've honed the, the writing of the song. You've honed the performance and the arrangement. The last step of that, and the thing that you have the least control over, mm-hmm. is what it sounds like to the audience. Right. And it's a little bit hard for me to totally let go of that. Right. And in fact, the, the older I get and the more work I do at honing sound, yeah. the harder it becomes. <laughs> sure, of course. 
Uh, especially for independent groups, because it's not like, you know, you're showing up at a venue, you've got 12 hours worth of setup and sound check. Yeah, you know, it's literally you... you show up a half hour later, you're on stage playing. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I like, the more I dabble in, because uh, I've recently been doing more um, live streaming on Twitch and YouTube, and, you know, I'm doing more, I have a third podcast, because I needed another podcast. And it, it, like a hole in the head. And and in all of the recording that I do, like I'm learning to just let go of some of the things I can't control. Um, like in the most recent episode of Fun and Games, uh, which is the gaming podcast I do that just came out. Plug. I was sitting way too close to the mic. <laughs> and it's pretty much the case through the whole episode. And I know that Jeff engineered the crap out of it and did the best he can to level it out. But I was eating my microphone whatever for whatever reason that day. And so, like, listening to him, like, this is the worst thing ever. I hate this. But nobody else has said anything. So yeah. my guess is I'm hearing what I know is there that other people won't necessarily recognize. Oh, my God. I, there are weird things that happen in performances. When you're, when, when you're putting together a musical performance mm -hmm. and producing it for a record, that happens all the time. It, it is just... Um, I, had, I had a guitar performance... I'm trying to remember what what the heck. The, oh God! It was on uh, the when the road darkens. Yeah. So they're in the very last by track, the Rose West. By the Rose West. Yes. Uh, if you like uh, post-apocalyptic progressive rock music, check it out. It's awesome. Um, the last track on that album uh, is a song called Slow Descent, and the very ending takes a left turn where it pulls in a melody from a song they haven't put on a record yet. It's yeah. very weird. Uh, and when I played it. I I had one pass through where I totally bombed the part I was playing. Uh-huh. And our producer was like, "Okay, that's the take we're going to keep." And I'm like, "What what 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 the, what the hell? Wait, what do you mean?" It's like, "That was dope." Uh and I I took a moment and I'm like, "Okay, I trust your judgment. I, I like almost every choice you've made on this record so far. Uh I guess I guess I'll let it stand." Uh, but it was a weird thing where like layered in it did sound sounded messed up yeah but it sounded messed up in a cool way yeah like it added character to the track and I mean after the fact I relearned how to play the part <laughs> to play the messed up way that I because did. you have to play it that way now yeah I, and I just it, once it gets in your head yeah. and once it gets in your ear I mean there's so many situations where I'll do a recording and the process of recording hones the parts and the arrangements for uh -huh. a song and I always feel like if I step away from from a recording session uh, I number one, you've you've listened to and played the song so many freaking times that you know your intimacy with the song is a lot higher. Right. But inevitably, it ends up teaching you something about what the final product is. What right. It, what it sounds like, what it should have sounded like, and that informs your playing decisions in the future. And that cycle is super neat. Well, yeah. The, the continuing organic nature of music and the organic nature of art in general is it will surprise you and it will keep growing up. Right. It's... Are there any times when you're editing your uh, voiceover clips for, for YouTube or for the audiobooks where you hear yourself and don't hear yourself? Like, you hear it and go, is that me? That doesn't sound like me. More so for the audiobooks than anything else. Yeah. Um, and just kind of once you get into the zone. And every now and then I'll kind of stop. And I, I consistently forget that I'm good at what I do. Is, <laughs> which is I, funny. I, oh, you mean you're an artist who has uh, no right. faith in their own ability to do their work? That never happens. That never happens. Never happened. Um, yeah, and especially with audiobooks, is every now and then like I'll take a moment. Or even like Robert will be in the, the background and I'll finish a take. And he'll turn around and be like, that was really good. Was like, <laughs> ah, it wasn't that great. I'll listen back and be like, oh shit, that was really good. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and it's, it's really neat of just... 
Not so much with the YouTube stuff, because the YouTube stuff is a lot of popcorn, and it's a lot of the same old, same old... 30 things flight attendants aren't telling you about your flight. Listen for number 27, because it's a real shocker. Like, there's nothing that there where you kind of discover yourself. Yeah. But, um... I, the, but I gotta, I gotta stop you, though, because every once in a while, you just add, you add spin and flavor to the things that you're working on, and maybe it's, like, you know, super goofy inflection... Or, you know, you say something in a way where you're, you're telling a joke that the writer didn't necessarily intend it to be. Or the writer's written a Donald Trump script and I have to say it somehow without bleeding from every orifice. Yeah, that's there, very there, difficult. There, that, there's that, too. Yeah, there's that, too. He's trending on YouTube. So. Uh, of course he is. <laughs> um, go, going back, though, to talking about the other things that I've been working on as well. Um, yeah. Since since we've met, uh, we've talked a lot about gaming and video games, a thing that both of you have not been involved in artistically, but have been interested in pretty much all the time. Oh, shit. Can I tell you a really funny story? Sure. I, I desperately wanted to get involved in the video game industry just after I got out of college. Uh-huh. And it was sort of where I thought I was going to end up working. For a while, because everybody has everyone moment. thinks that. Yeah. Um, so I I took a trip out to GDC uh-huh. uh, when I was like twenty one, maybe I was twenty two. I don't remember. It's you know so long ago. In my Shut past. up. Um, it was it was a decade now. It's I a know lot. we're old. It's um, fine. Whatever. <laughs> so I I thought I was being really clever, and uh, at the time I was doing a lot of world building, a lot of writing. This was when I was kind of putting together a lot of the story elements that have turned into the Rose West and. I was working comics with friends and a bunch of this stuff. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, well, I know I have skills in sound because you know, I'd been the uh, in-house engineer for uh, the RPI arts engineering program for a while. And, you know, I'd honed like all those skills. And, right. Okay. I can market myself as, you know, a production engineer for an in-house, you know, audio group. But I thought, hmm, it would be real neat to do some writing. Yeah. And this little known like snippet of my, my weird past. I used to write fan fiction in the Diablo universe. Of course you did. Uh, so I thought, screw it, there's going to be a Blizzard booth. Yeah. So I wrote a writing resume uh-huh. for Blizzard. I had it printed on parchment paper, and it was a resume for a necromancer in fiction. Wah, 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 wah. So, I mean, how did you remove your head from your ass after that experience is what I'm curious about. It has, it has still not left. The, okay. It's actually just made the full So did they so actually read it or did they just look at it, look at you and say, goodbye? I handed this to them with a big shit-eating grin on my face. Uh, they took it, they put it in the pile and they said, thank you. <laughs> End of story. Yeah, okay. That's all lead up and no punchline. they never called him. No. No, I'm still waiting for that callback. If you're listening, Blizzard, I'm still waiting for my callback. If you're listening, Blizzard, and you want to start a Blizzard podcast, I will help you do that. Because Matt needs another podcast. There are also definitely no Blizzard podcasts. Absolutely. Oh, not a single one. (laughs) Um, But it's just funny because me also, as someone who grew up a a music nerd and has always been interested in music and has... uh, as gaming has evolved its music has as well i do find myself going back to old games and realizing uh, 90 i wouldn't say 90 percent of the experience 90 percent of the immersion is the music music. like i'm i'm currently doing a playthrough which you can find on my youtube channel um and my twitch of the best rpg ever uh super mario rpg which now that i'm playing through it again and i'm talking to myself for a half hour every episode I find myself going back to the music a lot. Like, especially... Which is the... um, It's the 
that's the Rose Town theme as well as the forest, I forest believe. Theme. Yeah, yeah, the forest theme. And so, and I believe it's also considered Gino's theme, isn't it? Uh, maybe. Yes. I'm not gonna say yes. that out loud. Yeah, so because I'm uh, yeah rage. But but anyway, uh, replaying it, I forgot how. It's close. It's not the same. Yeah. It's part of Gino's theme, yeah. but it's not the whole thing because well, Gino's theme is a mashup of that and the Star theme. Oh, that's, that's also right. the best thing about a lot of those old tunes is they really knew how to rock a reprise. Yeah. Like. Well, I mean, it's it's the old school, um, just square prior to square Enix. Yeah. Team. And so, like, I find myself drawn to the music and the ambiance of those games a lot more now as I'm older. And it's just funny to see how art lays into that even more. Like, on Crash Chords, the flagship podcast, we did do Life is Strange, which is essentially like any 90s kid's indie life in music form. And uh, But also a lot of the key moments in that game that I watched on YouTube, because I don't own the whole game, um, I... Uh, I experienced a lot of it through the music as well as the... slow walk down a high school corridor while acoustic guitar plays. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, (laughs) It's just interesting to me to talk to people who like video games and who are nerdy about other things as well. Like, I imagine you, uh, Katie, must play games and hear certain voiceover choices. Oh, God, it will either make or break a game. Yeah. Um, Has there ever been a game you've played that you could not finish because the VO was so bad? Bravely Default. Okay, and that's and I wanted I was gonna specify it had to be a modern game yep. because we all know the gags about the original Resident Evil on PlayStation. Oh, and how, that's brilliant uh, though. That's like mm, 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 <laughs> yeah. that's like eating like finely aged cheese puffs. Ugh, it uh, was it, it was literally the worst voice acting I think I've ever heard. Oh, it's delicious. Mm. Well, but, but that's that's the beautiful. It's kind of like the old school classic like total B list monster flicks. Yeah, I mean like Plan oh, Nine from oh, Outer oh, Space. Oh, yeah, oh. is is you can really sink your teeth into how bad it is. Sure. But if it's going to be bad, it's it's either got to be like so bad that it's awesome yeah. or just be good. <laughs> so what was the problem with the Bravely Default voice acting? Was it just like deadpan and poor delivery or? It was nonsensical delivery and okay. it was everything was done so in a bubble. You could tell the, um, the voice actors never heard the deliveries of their fellow voice actors. Uh... Um, everything was... It was kind of like where usually an acting direction is, you know, go as far as you can and I'll pull you back. And every single line, though, the voiceover work in it was just exhausting. Um, and there were some nice moments of subtlety, but they were few and far between. Um, it actually got to the point of where I think I put it into the original Japanese uh, dialogue just so I didn't have to listen to them anymore. Yeah. Because then at least I was listening to over-the-top inflection, but then it just was... Uh, Word Over the top inflection understand. that I didn't understand. Right. <laughs> um, so we kind of got the the feeling across without me having to listen to it in English. And if anybody who's a voice actor on that is listening, I'm so sorry, but man, you are hard to listen to. Um, but then I'm like, <laughs> it's just what happens. And then you you get games also like right now, obviously, uh, Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. Is yeah. Kind of the polar opposite of where the oh. voiceover. Hop. Oh, yeah. The oh. jumping. Hop. Oh. Uh, but yeah, all of, it was the first Zelda game to really fit, fit, feature like cutscenes with voice acting besides mm-hmm. Link, who still doesn't speak. Yep. Um, but yeah, I thought it's one of the best actresses to portray Zelda in any capacity. And oh then, my god, she's spectacular! And then the support staff is really good mm-hmm. too. Like all, or even the one-liners, like the the guy who, uh, the traveling salesman who you talk to, um, who has like the one-line sound effects. Like all of it just conveys so much yeah. emotion, such a short amount of sound. Yeah, even like Prince Sidon's like. Hey! Just like in the yeah. background all the time. Yeah. Um, but it's absolutely spectacular. But yeah, voiceover work makes or breaks a game, which actually is right now 
why voiceover artists deserve equal pay yeah. for video games and they're still on strike. Da 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 da. Um, which is why when you were saying, you know, as far as like, did you ever wish to be in the video game industry? Like absolutely 100%. And it's those early games like Resident Evil and yeah. like with the overly cheesy poof voiceover work is those are the games like growing up and you listen and you're like, wait, people actually do this. I can do I could this. do this. Like yeah. I could sit in a room and I could make these weird sounds come out of my face and just, you know, like... <laughs> just yell about tyrants. And yeah. Just like, oh my god, the zombies, they're coming. Yeah. Um, and I'll pose a similar question to you, Robert, since uh, obviously I know you love VO and all that stuff in, in those games as much as Katie does, but has there ever been a soundtrack that m made or broke a game for you? I mean, I imagine it's more, there have been soundtracks that have added to it, but has there ever been a soundtrack that was so bad it was distracting in a game? Oh god. Um, I actually, I really dislike... Uh, almost all third-person over-the-shoulder shooters uh -huh. because I feel like none of their soundtracks are memorable. And actually, it's there's a there's an era difference I yeah. think in a lot of ways between um, the music in, in gaming right now, yeah. which is trending way more atmospheric than it has ever been in the history of gaming. For sure. Um, that while I think it's if if your if your goal is let's showcase the the you know millions and millions of dollars that we spent on our art yeah you know okay I kind of get the attitude but I think the other thing and this is a weird thing I was thinking about when you were mentioning uh, going back and doing playthroughs of earlier games the toolkit was a lot smaller yeah and oftentimes you know as musicians we think oh well a toolkit's really small it's going to make our our music less creative or give us fewer options and uh, the era of like the 8-bit and the 16-bit uh, games had a lot going for it in that it had a very well-honed but small toolkit available yeah. for composers. And that toolkit included no tool that was not instantly memorable. Yeah. Just because, like, you know, the sawtooth waveforms and square waves and, and what those sound chips gave you to work with, every sound you could make was distinctive. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reason why people are still making chiptune music with the same sound chips today. Yeah. It's because those sounds are freaking cool. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot that you can do with them that isn't going to stick itself in your head. Yeah. And sometimes I have a hard time thinking about, okay, if I walk, if I walked away from a game as a kid, mm -hmm. I would have at least one, if not many of the, the tunes from those games stuck in my head for ages. And there are so many of them that I will just go around like talking about Super Mario RPG. I have been humming the songs from that game yeah. since I played it. For 20 it. years. Yeah, for yeah. Jesus. 20 years. And that almost never happens anymore. Yeah. I mean, well, that's like I've always said that the best salsa song I've ever heard in my life is the Gemini Man theme from Mega Man 3. <laughs> it's the best salsa song I've ever heard. It's just so great and so complicated. And Overclock Remix has done some really cool stuff with it. Um, but like, yeah, no, it's the same for me. I think that, I think the difference is also is like the later games now, like Mass Effect had a great sci-fi soundtrack for the ambiance of the game. Yeah. I don't feel like it stands alone well. Or like we way back when reviewed the Halo, I think it was Halo 3 soundtrack. And I mean, uh, what's his name? Tom, I'm not going to remember his name, but the guy who, comp who works on the instrumentation for those games and the composer also has a different name who I can't remember, although it's on that episode if you go check it out. Um, did amazing work for Halo, 
but it's only for Halo. It's not something that's really listenable outside of it. Whereas I've listened to the Chrono Trigger soundtrack by oh, itself God, yes. over and over and over again. Well, it Be- also comes down to modern iterations of franchises, too. Like, yeah. for instance, listening to music that's been put into some of the newer Final Fantasy games. Yeah. It doesn't have that same heart and soul that it was allowed to have back in 8-bit days or in chiptune days. Right. And while it's still there and like the orchestrations are incredible it's not memorable unless they've worked in that classic chocobo theme right. or that classic battle theme a lot of the time you don't leave it thinking like oh because again it's that maintaining of the atmospheric sound and push towards music these days for video games well and, and it's also the question and I, I guess maybe for me uh video game music was such a core piece of my musical development yeah it, it informed how i think about melody and harmony I mean, right. like, a lot of my, my harmonic sensibilities come from the three-part harmonizations that you got in old-school, you know, like, 8-bit and 16-bit games. Right. Um, that's not the way that people are writing anymore. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, things like Final Fantasy is a really great example. You know, you started with these amazing compositions in a limited tool set. Yeah. And then people loved them and they got stuck in their heads so much they started doing these really beautiful orchestrations. Yeah. And then, they, you know, they add some rock guitar to those orchestrations. And all of a sudden yeah. you've got this some, this thing that's really cool, but it's it's not really video game music. But, I mean, the only thing that I can think of is uh, talking to, to, like, modern day fans. Yeah. Who maybe have gone back through the catalog, but yeah. who were introduced in newer games... Oftentimes they love the newest iterations and yeah. like they can understand the charm of, you know, the the early days. Yeah. But it's not like that to them is the anchor point that defines their their view of the music. Right. And I think that there is so much to be said about the way that we gravitate towards the stuff that we're exposed to early mm-hmm. and the things that inform who we are are always going to be more important to our sense of what they brought to the table in a particular thing. Like you know, like sprite, sprite-based graphics. Yeah. If you didn't grow up with sprite-based graphics, you might be like, okay, this is cute and kitschy, but it not, might not inform your sense of, you know, anatomy. Yeah. I mean, like, if you didn't grow up with, like, the early days of anime, you might have a very different sense of how an anime character should be drawn. Yeah. Uh, the same thing goes with music. Well, it's like, for me, uh, with Chrono Trigger, I remember getting uh, a now ex-girlfriend of mine uh, to try and play it because she loved modern RPGs. And... I gave it to her and she played it for a couple hours and went, eh, it's not great. And like, to me, that's like, you're crushing me because that's my favorite RPG of all time. Damn kids! But but I get it. You know, it, 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 back then we had to accept what we had because it's all that we had. Yep. And so the story shines through stronger because you're not, the graphics are the graphics, they don't matter. And that's why now as someone who owns a Nintendo Switch and who owns a PS4 and a PC, advanced graphics isn't what sells a game to me. It's the content the composition and the story. You know, the graphics are nice. If it looks cool, it looks cool. But that's not enough to keep me playing a game. Well, I think the thing for me is it's not necessarily about uh, how advanced the graphics are. Right. Like, I I can nerd out on, you know, yes. like the, the near newest 4K HDR stuff. Yeah. Like, I think all that's really neat. But uh, just because you're using all of the modern tools doesn't mean that you're using them well. Right. And the thing that I think a lot of like the old school particularly you know in in the sprite based games era, mm-hmm. um, atmosphere was hugely important I mean hell go into like the PlayStation era of like you know low count polygon yeah. uh, 3D that stuff relied so heavily on knowing how to use lighting effects to create moods because a lot of it was 
how little can we show yeah. and still engage people in you know the thing that we're making? Yeah. Because ultimately it was still about storytelling. And I remember, I think it was when uh, when Final Fantasy uh, thirteen came out, right? Shortly after Final Fantasy thirteen came out, uh, they were, I think Square, the president of Square Soft at the time, Square Enix at the time, had said the problem with creating these big, expensive open world games like we used to make is that the graphic cost, the cost to make all of the assets, to populate a world that is all drawn in this kind of a resolution is prohibitive. Yeah. Whereas when the assets cost less to make, you could make, you know, you know, snap decisions about the development of the story. Yeah. And the story could really push uh, the development cycle. Yeah. In a way that now, if you, t- if you talk to people who are developers... So much of the time, you're like, okay, so we want, uh, you know, submarine levels to so build a submarine and some characters you think would fit in the submarine, and then give me a warehouse in a frozen tundra and give me a you know presidential mansion, and then after you have all these set pieces and these characters, the writer's job is to create a through line through the assets. Yeah. And, you know, having stories that are not inherently informed by narrative decisions. You feel that in yeah, a game. <laughs> for sure, yeah, totally. It's why I think a lot of first-person shooters for many years and fighting games fell flat for me. While the colorful fighting games of my childhood, really, it was just about things exploding and giant bright colors. Now that things need a storyline, which I think is kind of true, I think mostly just because you want to get something out of your game and replayability of the game mechanics itself is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless I, you're a Nintendo game. And and, Nintendo is... Nintendo is eternal. Well, yeah, but I feel like even <laughs> Nintendo, like when there's less story, you're filling in the gaps more fluidly because your imagination can easily take over. Whereas like Mortal Kombat struggled for many years because the story was very weak. There's a tournament, you have to save the earth, you have Blood to win. Blood. But you, you know where that where that changed and this game was spectacular and I can't believe I just thought about it right. But the Sub-Zero Chronicles were yeah. spectacular games mm. and they were not fighting games. The, they were spectacular. The story was spectacular. The gameplay was terrible. Well, it, it was designed horribly. You want to know? Here's the thing for me, and uh, it's what separates me from a lot of gamers. I I couldn't. I can almost always care less about the gameplay, which is fine. But as someone who is not a skilled gamer, especially when he was a kid, having a button to need to turn around to fight, <laughs> like literally, you had to press a button to switch which way you were facing, made yeah. it very difficult to play for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, but like even now in the more recent years, when they did the crossover with DC, and everyone laughed, like, why is Mortal Kombat crossing over with DC? It gave them a reason to write these weird transitional stories that then in Mortal Kombat X and the two Injustice games that have now come out, they found this way to weave a story seamlessly from cutscene to a guy walking up to another guy while talking to the match to the match ending him walking away from the fight into another cutscene. Like, it's just strung together really well and that's the game mechanics informing the story Mm. and the story still being a success, which I think is really interesting. It's totally possible. It's just not always executed well. Right. Well, it's like also talking about music informing a game, um, the new Breath of the Wild or the new Zelda, which is called Breath of the Wild. I was disappointed that there was no, like, there's no Zelda main title theme. The Zelda theme is not really present in the game. I think there are some moments where it is, but as a, as a whole, it's not. Well, it's because they, they're aggressively going in that same direction. It's all about informing atmosphere. You know, so like, and, and granted, I'm, I will be the first to admit, I have played uh, approximately one hour of Breath of the Wild. Not finished the tutorial yet. I've, yeah. not fin- I've not gotten off the first plateau. 
Uh, it was also because I had to kill the freaking first guardian I got. Everybody yeah. does that. Because uh, I obsessed about it, and then I got almost nothing in exchange. It was very aggravating. Yeah. Um, Welcome to Breath of the Wild. But the way that the game presented music in context, it it felt to me like the sound of imagined music on the wind. Yeah. And that is wicked cool. Yeah. It's just, it's not... It's not what the series has brought you to expect, right? Because so much of how the game has been composed previously uh, is it's this through compositional like there's a theme for every yeah. encounter and the music is super memorable. I will make a note on that, and actually, it's just as far as going off of it, I actually adore the musical composition of Breath of the Wild because, in my opinion, it's a, an aspect of the world building for yeah. it. The world is a fragmented world, yeah. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but it has. It's moved on. It's some yeah. dark tower shit. It's exactly the moments of where you find bits and pieces of the things that you loved in a world that has been so thoroughly broken, and it's still staying together. And so it's not so much that there, at this time, there is no music anymore. Yeah. There is no theme that is still existing, and so as you're traversing this very open world for a Zelda game, you're reconnecting and finding the things that originally brought you to it. Right. And it's those moments of music on the wind that really kind of remind you of what you're fighting for. And I think as a storytelling component, the music works in that way. But again, there's no main new theme. There's but, nothing right. well, new I, there, but it's all the shadows of the past. Now granted, having not played it, this is a question. So I know that there's a lot of the story that is told through cutscenes. Uh-huh. Um, are those cutscenes orchestrated every so, single one every single one because that to me kind of reinforces what she's saying here which is mostly the orchestration is yeah. remembering this you know All right and by, and, by, and i'm by no means saying that it's bad i think it's just for me it's it's noticeable yeah. like the my my now current favorite legend of zelda game complete com kit and caboodle is um link uh link between worlds because um, Link to the it's the spiritual successor to Link to the Past, which is my favorite Zelda game. But also, it was the first Zelda game, which was on the 3DS, to feature fully orchestrated music. Yeah. They took all of the Zelda music that you love and some new stuff, and it was done by the Zelda Symphony that does the live performances. And that was, to me, he, turning on that game and hearing the Zelda main title theme in orchestration on the beautiful 3DS speakers, because they really do have a great sound system on that system was incredible to me to then come to breath of the wild which almost has no music in the first Jesus, few hours yeah. Yeah. was so i struggled with a lot but i ultimately do agree i just think it's interesting as far as a company that's always done the same thing and still continues to do the same thing with their storytelling for a lot of their main flag franchises are making different choices in composition and um gameplay which is not usually the case usually the quickest things to change are the story elements like if you're making sequels you don't want the story to be the same but it's always rescue the princess for a lot of the nintendo games which is fine but they're making other choices in different places which is interesting to me yeah, this is a huge this is a huge experimental lead for nintendo and i think it's going to pay off and i think the next game they do in this way yeah. will be perfect <laughs> probably um, just, it's going to be one of those things like all of us are going to be able to quit video games for forever it will break the system and then we'll, we'll never have to play anything ever we'll again we'll throw our electronics away and move into a cave like the next zelda game <laughs> i is mean that be... may be just coming based on the state of the world anyway that's true which the is world is depressing. over stock up on soup well, I was going to say stock up on caves. <laughs> stock up on uh, caves. caves. Yeah. <laughs> we, need, we need to get into the, the cave selling business. I think that's yeah. really what it is. Well, that's the next well, podcast. Well, right is, now uh, it's, it's cave. Stormageddon's cave prep. 
Let's keep buying. So first, you know, we've got to really hop onto the cave real estate market and get it while it's cheap. And then when things really go to hell, we'll flip. We'll flip. We'll yeah. Flip yeah. Caves. Yeah. We'll just, just flip caves. And you'll you'll keep the hottest cave for yourself. It, obviously. Yeah. And by that you mean the coolest caves for yourself. Well, it's true. Literally because nobody wants caves. a hot cave. You'll no. Well, you need a hot cave. I mean, you've got to cook somewhere, right? And there's going to be a nuclear winter, so you do need to stay warm. You yeah. know what? It's true. It's yeah. True. So you this, split the difference. This yeah. this this podcast. So yeah, very silly and very dark. Really quick. Um. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate you. Um, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Since ah. that's probably where they will be looking for you. Uh, for me, if you go to uh, a new website, I'm not sure if you've heard about it, Amazon.com and search Katie Delaney, K-A-T-I Delaney. Um, you can find my audiobooks, including the Donkey Kong joke and meme book, which you can purchase for $4 and not laugh. Yeah. For, uh, if that, if you're for about that. 35 minutes. If you love not laughing at Donkey Kong memes uh <laughs> then you could do that okay um or you could purchase some delightful werewolf erotica uh for a little bit more uh outside of that you can find me on youtube um under the channels the richest the little things the things and the trendy um and then hopefully uh in a little while we'll come back maybe and plug a podcast of an unknown name someday, someday. we'll get to introduce everyone to jerry Oh, yeah. Jerry. That's your only teaser. That's it. Um, and, How about you, uh, Rob? Oh, man. Uh, you can find me in a bunch of places, but um, like I, I mentioned house. it before. Uh, you can definitely find uh, The Rose West, which is my favorite of my various musical projects. Uh, it's available on Bandcamp, Spotify, but The Rose West, three easy to remember words. Um, you can pretty much find uh, the debut album by The Rose West, When the Rope Darkens, anywhere there is music. If you're an iTunes person, you can find it there. If you're Spotify, Bandcamp, all over the place. Uh, if you want to send us more money to support it, Bandcamp is always the way to go. Uh, same thing goes for um, Rare Spirits. If you want to pick up Dram, the three original tunes uh, by our uh, four-member Prohibition-inspired uh, alt-blues folk band, uh, check out Rare Spirits on Bandcamp as well. We're going to be working on a uh, an album for the Wasties, which is the former house band of the Way Station, that features uh, Matt's lovely uh, wife Sarah. Yes. Uh, and everyone from Rare Spirits. Uh, I have a rent for band called uh, The Knaves of Wits End, which is available on Facebook. All these things you can find on Facebook, Twitter, uh, various social media outlets. And if you like me and you just want to say like, "Hey, dude, you're real neat," you can just stalk me on Facebook. I'm easy to find. My name is Robert Prime. Don't talk in real life, though, because... Try, try that's and, creepy. Try and spell my name, though. <laughs> yeah, good luck That's with the that. challenge. Well, good I mean, if they're listening to this, print. they've pulled it up on iTunes where it's there or on oh, the yeah. website. It's a big old title. You're yeah. done for. Yeah, you're done for. Yeah. People are going to okay. find you everywhere. So I retract my invitation for stalking. Uh, uh, please, please don't stalk me. I yeah. re-extend it for everybody else. Okay. Dang. <laughs> um, uh, and the last thing I would have you guys do is we have a sign-off that you're very familiar with at, uh, at Crash Chords, which is music and life, and life is good. So if on the count of three I could get you to both do that for me, that would be wonderful. Only if we can high-five at the end. Okay. All right, cool. Yeah. All right. All right. One, two, three. Music is music life, and life, life is, is good. If you enjoyed these interviews, please subscribe to this and the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post in the comment area below each post. And keep the discussion going, because remember, music is life, and life is good.